0: Here, All right, well, let's open with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word, Father. We thank you for the blessings in this temporal world where you do hear our cries. You protect us, Father. You enable us to uh, be safe in so many occasions. We've, we forget that, that ultimately your providence is over all the things, even snow plows and salt. And so, Father, we thank you that We can come to worship and we can be in a warm building and that we can consider your word in a way in which we're not distracted with uh, all sorts of needs because you've met them all and we don't even think about them. So bless us, Father, with your spirit this morning and help us to understand and love you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to be looking at chapters 7 and chapters 8 this morning. Um, And especially I want to notice... God's electing love, that God has chosen a people and that because God has chosen us and done good for us in our forefathers of the faith, that we should not forget him, but we should remember him. And God uh, shows us in these two chapters a test in humility, that God tests his people in order to humble them in order to make them see that they need him by his grace alone and that they cannot earn anything through him. And so it's a, it's a good lesson in these two chapters. We saw uh, last time that when God regave the law in chapter 5, it was not only to remind Israel of righteousness, of sin, of moral instruction, but also to commend in them the desire for a mediator that they showed on Mount Sinai. They told Moses... You know, don't let us hear God anymore. You come and speak to us. And that was good. They understood they needed a person. They needed a mediator to go between them and God, which is their heart's need of Christ. And Moses was just a type of that. And so Moses talked about how that was a good thing. And that their primary duty as God's people was to love God. That was the thing God wanted the most, that they would love God And that God became their God by his own electing love, having chosen Abraham and then demonstrating for them his love and loyalty to Abraham when he brought them out of Egypt. And then that was the great Shema, the the entrance into it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love. The thing Israel was to be told over and over again, love, love, love the Lord. Never forget that. Love the Lord because he's done so much good for you and Then the warning to Israel at the end of chapter 6, when God's given you houses and cities and vineyards and fruit trees and all wells and everything else that you didn't do anything to get, uh, don't turn from God. Don't be like, oh, I got everything I need and now I'm going to think about new ways to pleasure myself. Don't turn from God, for then he'll punish you. Remember this. Focus on the Lord. Walk in his law. It's good for you. This will help you to understand what it means to love God. Remember, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. We don't want to separate law from love. Love is the, or Law is the expression of love. When we do love God, that we want to do what's pleasing to him. And then the admonition, teach your children. Uh, Especially how you were slaves, teach them how. It's, again, God's sovereign grace. God delivered you. God blessed you. He gave you this good law and that as you walk in it and as you seek to love him, it'll be good for you. So that gets us into chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, which you are to possess, and has cast out many nations before you, and then he names the nations, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, etc. When, verse 2, when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. So God's going to cast out these seven nations. God's going to conquer them, yet Israel has to go in and, and make war with them. They can't just sort of sit back and say, well, it's God's grace, so I'm not going to do anything. Yeah, it's God's grace, but you're still supposed to listen And you're still supposed to obey. I I made that distinction um, when we were looking in 1 Samuel. Remember when God gives Goliath into David's hand, but David just doesn't sit down and do nothing. David picks up some rocks, puts them in his pocket, goes out and uses the sling. He still has to aim, still has to act. He's trusting in God, but he's still acting. And you and I are to do the same thing in our lives. And this was, remember, part of the haram, the holy war. You will wipe them out. You will show no mercy. That was only for that time and for that particular initial conquest. God gave them laws for war where they offer peace and everything else. In the other parts of the book, we've already looked at that. But this was to go in and conquer the land because God had decided to judge these people. And Israel was going to be the means. Okay. And so there was to be no mercy. God's wrath was falling on them. God gave them 400 years. God's mercy had come to an end for these people. And so Israel had to, um, had to do this. And then verses 3 to f- and 4, you shall not make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son. Why? They're going to turn you away from following me. And then God's anger will be on you. And then you'll be judged. So it's interesting that verses 3 and 4 almost sort of anticipate that Israel is not going to do verse 2. Because if you wipe them out, you don't have to worry about marriages. right? You don't have to worry about, oh, gee, should I give my son... Or should I give my daughter to this Canaanite man? Or should I take this Canaanite woman? They're supposed to be dead. So no marriage is going to happen. So it, in a sense, God is recognizing Israel is going to have to make these kinds of decisions. Because they're not going to listen. But God's grace still works with them, as it were, even when they don't listen. And we see the mar- what marriage would do. And of course, this is true today when we marry unbelievers. And it is about faith. It's not race. I've heard uh, progressives and liberals try to c- condemn the Bible. The Bible is racist because the Jews had to just... It, wasn't about, it was never about race. It was about faith. And we're going to see that with the Moabites uh, and the Ammonites later. I'll um, well, just anticipate it now. That uh, if, you, if you look later in the book of Deuteronomy, the Moabites and the Ammonites were not allowed to enter the sanctuary until the 10th generation. You know, And it wasn't because of their race, it was because of what they did to Israel when they came out of the land. So God was punishing them for actions, not for who they were. But even that is going to be seen to be limited to faith because Ruth is a Moabitess. And she doesn't have to wait ten years before her son can go to the temple. Because David's only four generations later and he builds the temple. Solomon builds it five generations later, but David gets all the supplies for it. So that that curse ended as soon as somebody renounced the gods of Moab and made Israel's god, their god. Then they become one with the people. Ruth was no longer a Moabitess. When she did that, she was of the tribe of Judah. Judah adopts all, uh, you know, Judah adopts, um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, Ruth even as Rahab is adopted and and is absorbed into Israel. That's the case. We always got to remember that. It's a matter of faith. The the judgments of God are not because of race. And that's true for marriages. It's not because they're a different race. It's because they don't believe that you can't marry them. And that's true in the New Testament as well. And the same reasons. They'll turn you away from God. God's anger will be on you. And you'll bring judgment on your house. And that happens all the time. And how many times, you know, we've seen that and churches have seen that where the members' um, children will want to marry some unbeliever. And we'll stand against that and we'll get all kind of flack for that and 10 years later the marriage is in shambles where the person's not going to church anymore the very thing that we tried to protect them from and so this command is in there for a reason Uh, it happens right Uh, when we marry unbelievers they lead us away from God why because the very first thing you're doing is sinning from God you're you're putting a person you're putting something in this world before God God should be first and so the first thing that we need to do is recognize that we can't Stray away from God and think God's going to bring us back. God might. God is that gracious. But our law is we have to marry only believers. You know, when we get examined at Presbyterian, that regularly comes up, you know. Um, And I, you know, uh, have said, and and the right position and ministers will answer is, I can marry two believers. I can marry two unbelievers. Because marriage is a civil thing for all mankind. What I can't do is let that believer marry that unbeliever because that believer is sinning. The unbeliever isn't sinning. The believer is. And so we have to put God first in our our lives. And if that person that we're going to take closer to us than anyone else and they don't know the Lord, that would be putting them before the Lord. And that's why God forbids it. All right, so uh, verse 5, the ultimate danger for Israel, therefore, is idolatry, right? Therefore, break down their altars, their pillars. Even after they're killed, the accoutrements of their false religions could entice Israel. And so destroy all false religion because false religion is going to be judged by God. Uh, verse. Uh, let me jump down then to um, the, this sin of idolatry, verse 16. We see it again. Destroy uh, the Lord. Uh, you shall destroy all the peoples who the Lord your God have no pity, nor shall you serve their gods. That would be a snare for you, right? So God's trying to protect Israel from, from his wrath for their sins if they would stray and worship other gods. Verse 25, you shall burn their carved images with fire. You shall not covet the silver, the gold that is on them, uh, lest you be ensnared. Verse 26. Um, Do not bring this abomination into your house. That would be something to do with a false religion. Lest you be doomed to destruction. Those things were to be doomed to destruction. That's the haram, destroyed. And therefore anybody who takes it into their house is going to be doomed to destruction. And this anticipates Achan in the book of Joshua. Remember? uh, Jericho was to be completely wiped out. But Achan sees this tapestry. It's beautiful. He sees this silver. He sees this gold. He takes it into his tent. And judgment falls upon them because uh, these things were linked to the idolatry of Jericho. And God was showing in Jericho what Israel was to do to the rest of the uh, land and to the false religions. So um, God's election and love of Israel, verse 6, the reason for all of this, because you are a holy people to the Lord your God, the Lord has chosen you. Right To be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And so God gave Israel this special treatment, this special privilege, this special place. Nobody else gets this. Israel didn't do anything to get it. God just chose them, gave them this, and therefore they have to respond accordingly. And no, notice God's is, election is for himself, a people for himself. God is doing this for his own glory, for his own delight. Israel is now holy to the Lord because God has chosen them, and therefore uh, Israel is to respond that way. Uh, and no other people get that. Israel got that. This is true for the elect. No other people get that. The elect get that. So the huge question at this point is: Why does God choose Israel? This sometimes will come up in the new members' class. Why did God choose? You know me to be saved and not my neighbor or my family member. First of all you don't know that he didn't choose your neighbor or family member. They're not dead yet. They could come to Christ which would mean God chose them from before the foundation of the world. Um, But second of all um, the reason ultimately is given I think in this text. Why does God choose Israel? Why does God choose anybody? And verse 7 is the answer. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people for you were the least of the peoples but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and so the corporate national as it were election of Israel as the people of God was because God loved them why did God choose Israel? God loved them you could say why did God love Israel? because he decided to love them there's nothing in people That moves God to say, oh, I want this one and not that one. Then God would be a respecter of persons. Then we would not be utterly sinful, uh, dead in our sins. There would be, oh, this one's better. Or if I look down the corridors of time, this one will make the right decision. If I give all of this grace and this one won't. But I'll still leave it up to them. And so I'm going to choose based on what they're going to do. At the end end of the day, it's this one's better than that one. And that is not the basis for election. Basis for election is they're both completely worthless garbage, utterly sinful. And I'm going to pick this one because I don't want to destroy them both. That's what it comes down to. Uh, and, and And that's grace. Grace is there's nothing in me. Yet God... Chose and saved me. And so what, we, what do we do? We sing his praises forever and ever. But that's what this verse says. The Lord didn't say It wasn't because you were the best. wasn't because you were the biggest. You were actually the least. Sometimes I'll say this when, when that comes up. That maybe if you want to find an earthly reason why God might have chosen you for salvation, it may be because you were actually in the temporal worse than this other person. <laughs> you were actually for, you know, further. You were actually sinning more. I see that kind of principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. When Paul tells the Corinthians, verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, your calling from God to salvation, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has, God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to, 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 put to shame the strong. And the base things of the world and the things which are not, God has chosen to bring to nothing the things that are. So it may be that you were weaker, dumber, less noble, more base, because that's why God chose the Corinthians. They were actually less than the, you know, Athenians or whatever around them. Um, So, you know, it may be that, but, uh, but really and truly it's nothing in us. It's nothing in us. Election ultimately is God's free choice. There is no earthly human reason why God would elect this person and not this person. The reason is in God. God decides. Neither one is worth it would ever be worth it. And Israel has to learn that lesson so they don't be puffed up in pride. And unfortunately, for the most part, they didn't. Which is why by the time Christ comes, there's very, very few the rest of them are puffed up. The rest of them think they're better. They had added all kinds of laws about the Gentiles that they wouldn't even eat with them, etc. and that was never said in the Scriptures. But they thought they were better. That's why God chose them. Look, we have circumcision. Look, we have the Passover. Look, we don't eat pork. We are better. All of those things were not for that. All of those things were to humble them, to keep them separate, to show forth the Lord Jesus who would come, but they made those things their badge of honor. We're better because we have the law. Actually, they should have said we are more aware of our sins because we have the law, and how sinful we are. All right. So God chose Israel because He loved them, because He would keep this, the oath with their fathers. And again, that's not anything that's oh, you know somehow makes them better. Why did He choose Abraham? Because He decided to choose Abraham. Abraham was. Nothing either. We're going to get to the book later, uh, later in Deuteronomy, where the the, um, um, the Jews are to actually confess that their father was a wandering Syrian or Aramean, and God chose him. That he and, he was just like the rest of them. So it's you know this linking to Abraham doesn't make them uh, better at all. Uh, it just says God keeps His promises. God chose Abraham for no earthly reason. But he promised Abraham that his seed would possess this land after 400 years in slavery. So that's why God is doing it now. He's going to keep that promise to this one who was also dead in sins when he chose him. Um, And so there are uh, particular, we see this preference again rather, uh, an attention of God's saving acts towards Israel uh, because he has this Abrahamic covenant. He swore an oath. An oath that was not elicited from Abraham. He swore it because God decided to be merciful and gracious and he chose Abraham. All right? And uh, this idea of an oath speaks to God's covenant. And we see covenant language then um, in this text where God is, again, talking about how he's going to be faithful to what he has promised. And we're going to see that and look at that in a little bit. But there's only two covenants. In Reformed theology, the covenant of works in Adam, Adam failed, the covenant has been failed. Nobody can go back into that covenant and try again. We're all now under the curse that fell upon that covenant. Christ came and satisfied that curse for the redeemed, but he doesn't justify us, uh, strictly speaking, in a covenant of works. He has a covenant of grace with the Father, a second covenant, also in eternity, But Jesus, in that covenant, fulfills the punishment of this covenant and the righteousness. But it's in this covenant of grace that we're saved. And how do we get saved? By believing in Jesus. And so when God talks about the oath that he swore, or the covenant that he's respecting, it's the covenant of grace. We need to understand that. Because if it was the covenant of works, they would be cast off and destroyed. Like the Canaanites, Gargashites, Hittites, Hivites, who are still in that covenant of works because they do not, believe all right so God keeps his covenant mercy for a thousand generations that's verse 9 here's that covenant language know that the Lord your God he is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations again the covenant of grace because the covenant of works brings only justice wrath condemnation covenant of grace is I'm going to save you through a savior not because of you the seed of the woman and the seed of Abraham, the ultimate seed of Abraham. And so uh, God is reminding them of that, this, this grace and these blessings. Verses 9 to 15, we get the blessings of the Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace, which um, uh, are peculiar to the Jews at that time. Not that we don't have blessings, but God is not saying to you when you become a Christian... That your flocks are not going to be barren anymore, right, in your herds. We're not, we're not agrarian people living in the desert getting ready to go into the land. Okay, so these particular things, you know, I, I imagine there could be some movement someday where somebody would try to say, well, look, if you become a Christian, you've got to get a flock of goats so that you can get this blessing. Right? You, who knows? Somebody maybe will write a book and try to make some money on that. That's not what he's talking about. Verse 13, uh, he will you know, bless the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your land, your grain, your wine, your oil, the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flock, the land in which he swore to your fathers to give you. There's this, you know, this is, again is, is, a, is what God is doing with the people at this time. And so the blessings correspond to that. But God hasn't actually promised us a land. He hasn't promised you or me that, you know, this time tomorrow we're going to march down into, you know, uh, McKees rocks and we're all going to get a parcel of land because God has promised us that or something ridiculous. He's promised us salvation and he's promised to bless us in different ways, uh, but not in particular these physical things that Israel needed to model in a physical way. They were a type of heaven in the land, which is one of the reasons why um, their offspring were so important. If you don't have a son to carry on your name, it's as if your inheritance in heaven is gone. So what happens in Israel if the father can't bear a son and he dies? The brother goes into the wife. right? Leveret marriage, which we'll see later in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, we don't practice that today because, again, that, we have to have a, a seed after us to carry on our name. We don't, actually. Um, Christians can be single and have just as much blessing and, and, uh, and enjoyment of Christ. Uh, so... Uh, that's just something to recognize here. So these blessings are the Mosaic administration. God blesses us too. Uh, the fullness of the blessings that we have are spiritual, right? We have the Holy Spirit. We have the gifts, fruits of the Spirit like in a way that Israel did not have. But Israel gets these types and shadows that show ultimately heaven, right? In heaven, we're going to have wine and oil and abundance and grain and uh, mansions. Jesus talks about still physical things, uh, probably corresponding in, in a large part to a spiritual reality. But when Jesus says, in my Father's house are many mansions, I go to prepare a place for you, uh, we are going to have new bodies, and new bodies are going to require new places. So he- heaven's somewhat of a mystery. But the picture here is God's blessing his people in the land of promise. That's heaven, Ultimately. And the blessing is ultimately eternal life and all you know, the streets of gold and things beyond description. But Israel is getting to see and getting a foretaste of that. And we get to see that too when we read about them. All right. So uh, God's encouragement, therefore, to Israel is go in and conquer the land. <clears throat> Remember, uh, we saw this, uh, see this in verses 17 through 24. Uh, and here, you know, if you say the nations are too great, you don't be afraid of them. Why? Because God's wonders and signs that got you out of Egypt are going to be with you again. It's God's might by which Israel can conquer the land though they are commanded to do that. Here we even see the hornet. God's going to use nature. Um, he's going to use the hornet. Uh, we, we, we don't see uh, an example necessarily in scripture literally where God does that but God said he would do it and I don't doubt that he did it. And um, even in that He says, verse 22, the Lord's going to drive them out little by little. Because if he did it all at once, it would be bad for you. So even in the sense of how God's going to do it, would be for their good. Um, God's going to drive them out, verses 22 to 24. And uh, God will defeat them. And he will deliver their kings. No one will be able to stand against you. Remember the promise to Jonathan, but what? Jonathan had to believe, or Joshua. Joshua has to believe. Right, and so also Israel, they have to believe and actually go in and do it. God will do it through them if they do. Uh, And especially their idolatrous works, their false religions, their treasures, and so forth, which we already looked at 25 and 26, they're to cast off. So, uh, verses eight then, or chapter eight, verses one to six here is a testing. God's going to tell, remind them that those 38 and a half years, 39 years, wherever they're about to go into the land, it's almost full 40 years at this point that all of those hardships was a testing of Israel for their, as I call it, their self-interested obedience. Why did I say it that way? Because if you obey God, it's going to go well with you. You know, that's an incentive that God gives us. Do you want things to go well with you? Stop sinning and do what's right. Not in the sense that you're earning something, but you're avoiding judgment, right? You're avoiding judgment. If you stop getting drunk, you won't have a hangover anymore. It's that kind of thing. Stop doing evil, and you won't bring hardship in your life. Walk in the commandments, and it'll be good for you. So God's good law is good for us. It wasn't a way of salvation, but Israel was to live that way for their own, for their own again, self-interest. It's good when you do what God says. It goes better for you. Uh, and that's true today. So the obedience would bring life, again, not by merit, but by avoiding judgment-provoking evil. Obedience, though, must be from the heart. Notice, to know what was in your heart, verse 2. Not just that you would outwardly walk in these laws. God wanted their hearts. Remember, again, the priority of love, the Shema, that you you love the Lord your God. Jesus said that was the greatest thing, to love the Lord your God. And that's what God is showing them there, that they would love him. Uh, and this grace, though, is a humbling thing to make us trust God. Notice in verse 3, so he humbled you. He allowed you to hunger. You know, why do we go through hard things? Well, God is probably teaching us something to draw us closer to him. God uses difficulties in our life to sanctify us. Why do you have the struggles that you have? Ultimately, for your good, if you trust Christ. That's Romans 8. God will cause all things to work for good to those who love God. You've got to be living in love to him. And who are called according to his purpose. You've got to believe. You have to have been called. And now you believe. And you're walking in that faith. Loving him. And then all things are working for your good. Even if you don't like it. Even if it feels bad. Even if you're hungry. They were hungry. All right. And we see this again in verse 16. Who led you in the wilderness. uh, Fed you manna which your fathers did not know. That he might humble you. That he might test you. To do you good in the end. The manna was part of the test, part of the humbling. If you remember, at a later point, they get tired of the manna. They get tired of it. And, you know, I mean, I shouldn't say later point. This is after that. But recalling in the earlier books, uh, Numbers, where they get tired of the manna. And they complain to Moses, "All oh, we have this manna. We want meat. We want melons. We had meat and melons back to Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt. The manna was a test. We look at it and we think, wow, if I could see... Bread from heaven? What a powerful, you know, uh, strengthening of my faith that would be. Oh, my goodness, God has supernaturally created bread and put it on the ground. And he did it every day for 40 days. For whatever reason, that sign got old to them. It didn't mean a whole lot to them. You know, one of, the, um, one of my professors at seminary pointed out, because it's described as like a coriander seed. And it would have been difficult to pick up in, on, on sand, you know. You ever eat something that falls on the beach and you get some sand in your teeth? It's kind of nasty. The manna would have been a difficult thing. God provided for them, but it wasn't easy. It wasn't like they got steak dinners already cooked and they walked in, you know, and there the table was set. They had to go out and pick up that manna, cook it, boil it, whatever, uh, get the sand out of it. And they got tired of it. And yet God provided for them food. They would have starved. And that food was nourishing to them. And it was enough for them. All right, uh, God's supernatural provision was constant even where their clothes were not wearing out, as we see here. Garments did not wear out, verse 4, nor did your foot swell. They didn't get the plantar fasciitis that I struggle with all the time. I got pads in my shoes. Their foot didn't swell. When you think about that, 40 days in the water, or 40, yeah, 40 days, 40 years, garments didn't wear out. They didn't have those jeans that are all cut up today that everybody pays so much money for, right? Jeans stayed whole. You'd have to cut your own jeans up. They didn't wear out. All right. So God is uh, uh, showing this, this testing here. And, and the same thing, right? What do we read in Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 12. You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as son, my, God, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. God chastens us, nor to be discour- discouraged when you are rebuked by him. God rebukes his people. That's what the New Testament says. For th- whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father doesn't chasten? I mean, if it's a loving, good father. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers who corrected us; we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For indeed, they for a few days chastened us as seemed best to us, uh, as seemed best to them rather. But he for our profit that we would be partakers of holiness. That's the purpose for the humbling and the testing that Israel would be better for it. That they would be able to easily shuffle off the the things of this world, right? That they would look and see that's not ultimate. That's not where pleasure and happiness is. Even though Satan and the flesh and the world tempt me, if I only have that thing, right? If I only get that new perfume, all all the men will like me. I only get that, you know, new tractor and, uh, you know, what the commercials are always saying. This is it. And it's not it. I'm not saying it's, you know, the people should try to sell their products. That's a... But we should not read into that, oh, yeah, my life's going to change if I have that physical thing. And we do that. And that's one of the things God was teaching Israel. And it's interesting because this first generation does pretty well. Remember, this is the generation whose parents died because they didn't listen. They listen and for the most part conquer the land. And Israel is faithful. It says all the way through the lives of Joshua and all the elders who are with Joshua, which means this generation, it's the next generation that don't listen, that don't turn, and that don't uh, obey. So these testing is good. And and there's a test of luxury. We're seeing this in Sodom and Gomorrah as we've been looking at it. Sodom and Gomorrah were cities of luxury, cities of wealth. They were in that wonderfully uh, economically prosperous valley, the, the cities of the plain, which God's word says was like the Garden of Eden before God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. And we don't see that now in the Dead Sea Valley. But before God judged those cities, that, that plain was like the Garden of Eden, according to Scripture. So abundant in fruit trees and vines and crops. And again, in an agrarian world, that's wealth. That's power. Uh, and that's what Sodom and Gomorrah had. But the test of luxury would be given to Israel as well. And I, I'm, I'm seeing this in verses 7 through 14. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. Notice A land of brooks, water, fountains, springs. Why, why all that stuff on water? Because this is a dry region. They just came out of Sinai. You know, the Sinai Peninsula. Pretty barren place. Rock, solid rock. Wells were really hard to dig. So the fact that they have wells already dug was a big deal. But notice, a, a land of wheat, barley, vines, fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. Remember that phrase? It's flowing with milk and honey. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron, and out of the hills you'll dig copper. Rich in natural resources. One of the things that made America so uh, wealthy in the the world. It's because we have all these natural resources in the ground. Israel had that. God was blessing them with that. And then, you know, when you have eaten, when you are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good he has given you. Beware. This is when forgetting comes in, Right. Beware you do not forget the Lord by not keeping his commandments. Lest when you have eaten and are full and you have built beautiful houses and you dwell in them and your herds and your flocks multiply. Your silver and your gold is multiplied. You have multiplied and your heart is lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God. That you were slaves in Egypt. That they were throwing your boy babies into the Nile. You forget that. And you think look what I've done. Look what we've done. We're better than others. And we deserve this. And God said they should never do that, never give in to that temptation. So the, the uh, abundance of water, verse 7, food, verse 8, natural resources, verse 9, houses, verse 12, property and wealth, verse 13. And then the right way and the wrong way that they were to respond to this. And I put this in green and yellow for you. So when you have eaten and are full, there's the condition. Then you shall bless the Lord your God. There's their response. And why? Because God has given you so much good. That's the reason. And the wrong way is uh, their condition would be when you have eaten and are full. And their response would be to not keep the commandments. And their reason would be they forgot the Lord. They forgot what he did for them. They forgot that they were slaves. And so the same temporal circumstance can anticipate two different reactions. And two different uh, destinies as it were. Under the judgment of God or under the blessing of God. Yes, John. In the first word came, the word heart. Yes. Uh, can you give us some other words because heart doesn't work for a Oh, okay. Um, it does, it's just the Hebrew word for heart. Um, and um, the heart would speak to, sometimes the Bible speaks of, you know, the, the soul, um, the mind, um, The heart sometimes the spirit and what it's talking about is your sincere condition inside okay that the way you really think and believe that's your heart right jesus talks about you know these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me they're saying the words but they don't mean it so that's what's talking about here that in your heart what you really believe what you really think and feel is that it's not because of god it's because of me you know, your heart's lifted up. You're no longer remembering you were slaves. You should have been killed. God did this entirely, freely, graciously. No, you look at all this stuff and you think you're better. You know, the, their heart, they, be, they became proud. Um, so, so good. Uh, yeah, that's uh, uh, often, uh, you know, the Bible used that. And, and we talk about that in English, right? I love you with all my heart, right? I, in other words, I'm not holding back. I'm not pretending. I love you with all my heart with all of me. We don't actually mean the the muscle in the chest, right? It doesn't actually love. (laughs) But that's that's the way we speak, right? We speak that way. All right, so the same temporal uh, circumstances. Again, forgetting God is the reason for the wrong response. What would be the reason for the right response then? Well, the lifting up of the heart is times of rejoicing. When your heart is lifted up, when you're rejoicing, when you're celebrating, when you're in times of pleasure, when your heart is lifted, right? Because when the heart is downcast, that's a time of mourning, time of sorrow. So that's what they're talking about here. When your heart is lifted up, when you are rejoicing, when you are full of just, you know, oh, you're so delighting in all that you have. Everything's good. You're not mourning. You're not sorrowful. You're not worried. You're not stressed out. Your heart isn't trembling. It's lifted up. It's at ease. It's at rest. You're at ease in Zion. Um... And that's the very time when Satan comes in. That's when you've got to remember that God has saved you. One of the things that came out in uh, Don Williams' funeral service yesterday, uh, and I forget who initially said it, um, but um, I think it might have been Donnie, his son, said when when Dad prayed, he always would, would talk about thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Like in every prayer, he would make that part of the prayer. Lord, I thank you that you forgive us our sins. That's keeping a humble heart. That's remembering where you came from. That's remembering what you deserve. I mean, it's good to pray for all kinds of other things, but it's great. In, somewhere in that prayer, Lord, I'm a sinner. Thank you. You forgave me. Uh, that's what we should do, by the way, when we pray in Jesus' name. We're actually saying only because of Jesus, right? I mean, a lot of times we just rattle those words off. In Jesus' name. Well, what that should mean is because he died on the cross for me, I'm, I'm basing my hope of you hearing this prayer on that. Because of him. Not because of me. Not because I really want this. Not because I've been a really good boy this year. But but because of Jesus. All right. So the lifting up of the heart. Time of rejoicing. You shall. Notice the answer to verse. uh, The question I asked there. What would be the reason for the right response. Is that you would remember the Lord. And that's what we see in verse 18. You shall remember the Lord your God. To remember the Lord means to remember that I'm a sinner, means to acknowledge that it's God's grace alone, to remember the Lord, even when I do well, right? Even when I'm good at something. I love this. Remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you the power to get wealth. You know, sometimes people might be tempted to say, well... You know, I work a lot harder than this person. And it's not that, you know, uh, my works don't matter. I, I work harder. I get up earlier. I'm diligent. I study. This other person doesn't do any of that. How can you say I don't deserve that? I'm not saying that your works aren't important. I'm saying you should give God the credit that you actually have a desire to work harder. Why do you work harder? Why are you more committed? Any gift that you have that's been a benefit to you. And we benefit from our gifts, right? The person who works hard does do better. The Proverbs point us to the ant. Look at the ant. Look how the ant works. The grasshopper doesn't work, right? Aesop's sips fables. He sits around and gets wiped out when the winter comes. The ant storing up food. That's a good thing. But why is the ant the way he is? God makes him that way. You know, why do you have a, maybe you have a good work ethic. Where did you get that? Why do you have that? Why don't you jettison that tomorrow? Because God in his grace has given that to you and keeps that to you. Because if he didn't and he let you go, you would fall into every sin that came down the pike. And that's, I think, what's important. It is the Lord who gives you the power to get wealth. Okay, so maybe Israel's in the land, and they are. Notice it says, when you build houses. At first, they're going to get houses, but then he talks about when you've built your houses here. Um, and and yeah, sure, you built beautiful houses, verse 12. No doubt. You've learned things, you're disciplined, you have carpenters and blacksmiths and all of the rest. And you do works, but... God is the one who gives you the power to do that. God gives you the ability to do that, right? And God can take that away. And so that's important to remember. Uh, all of this, again, test that they would be humble, that they would give God the credit, that they would not be puffed up in pride because pride leads and is itself a, the great sin, but it leads into all sins. As soon as we're proud, uh, we forget God. So remember the Lord your God. Remember what he did for you. That's the key. All of our ability to do anything is ultimately God's gift. Forgetting God's going to result in turning to something that's not a God. Something's going to take the place of God. As soon as I forget God, idolatry. Whether it's an actual false religion idol or whether it's sex or money or power. That's my God. So when we forget God, when we think that we can do something on our own. We have a God that's not God. And God's going to judge human beings who do that. The result of forgetting God is disobedience. The result, disobedience, is judgment. And we see that same thing worked out in Romans. I just sort of hit me as I was working through these chapters. Suppressing the truth about God that we know from creation. Israel knows God from his salvation out of Egypt. But forgetting him, you know, suppressing what we know about God. uh, Flows out of this ungodliness and unrighteousness that we refuse to acknowledge him, we refuse to give him the credit. One of the things Romans one says, neither were they grateful. Right, everybody should be grateful. We should say, you know, I just thank God. And sometimes you you hear that, you know, celebrities or whatever. Well, I just thank God that we got through the game today or I thank God that things went well. And just that little acknowledgement. You know, you don't have to preach a sermon or something, but to acknowledge, yeah, God is the one who ultimately is over all. But when people forget to do that, when they start, stop to thinking that, the result is that the reasoning becomes empty. I'm summarizing, sort of paraphrasing Romans 1. Their reasoning becomes empty, vain in their thinking, and their without understanding hearts um, are darkened. We start to think of things more sinful. And then what? We profess to be wise. Look how wise we are with our theory of evolution. And we can explain everything with the big bang and we become fools. We actually now believe that frogs turn into princes. It just takes a billion years. That, that's a fairy tale. That's, that goes as real science now. They've become fools. Frogs turn into princes, and you don't even need the kiss of a princess would be the, you know an adequate cause You know, in a magical world. We don't even need adequate causes anymore. It just happens, time and chance. It's absolutely it's foolish, and it's led us to all sorts of foolishness. We're now... You know, a boy can become a girl and whatever, 50-some different genders. Absolute foolishness. And the re- this results in worshiping and serving the creature. The animals in the environment are now the god, right? We're going to sacrifice everything for climate change when carbon dioxide is actually good for the environment. It'll actually cause the plants to grow more, and, and they'll produce more oxygen, and the environment would correct itself. But no, 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 we're going to sacrifice health. We're going to sacrifice millions of lives, millions of lives to worship Gaia, Mother Earth, because we've forgotten God, and that's what we're doing. Uh, and God gives them over to sinful lust to the point where what? They even begin to do homosexuality, and we're seeing that rampant. So it all starts with forgetting God, and you're given over to more and more sin and more and more judgment. Look at all the judgment that we have. And all the difficulty. And so Israel had the same thing uh, set before them uh, in a different context. You know, the nation, a nation, God's nation. We are not, the church is not a nation in that sense. We are in every nation. Um, But the same kinds of things in Deuteronomy apply to us. And if we forget the Lord and turn, you know, we are going to turn to the creature in different ways. And we're going to reap things that are bad. And that's exactly what we see. Uh, So, Steve. Yeah, uh, and that's, that's a great question because in Reformed theology, we really do only believe in two covenants. We believe in what we call administrations of the covenant of grace. So there was an Abrahamic, there was even a Noaic administration of the covenant of grace, you know, from Adam to Noah. How did God, in other words, So God's people are saved by grace. They believe the promise that God's going to send a Savior. That was first given in the garden. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. All believers, including those who would subscribe to what you just said, would say, yes, that's the first gospel. The proto-evangelion, the first gospel, is when God says to Adam and Eve, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So that's the hope that everybody has from Adam to Noah. And we read that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, that Enoch was an actual prophet. Right? And Enoch was so holy that God takes him. And so you have these examples. Uh, We see Cain and Abel bringing sacrifice. We know there was worship. So we don't get a lot of information, but we know people worshiped God by believing in the promise and so forth. And there was preaching and there were prophets. And so that was how God cared for his people. You know, uh, it says in the time of, um, uh, I forget, uh, I believe it was enoch that men began to call upon the name of the lord and i showed you when we were back in that chapter in genesis that actually refers to public worship it doesn't mean prayer they were already praying they're praying immediately in genesis calling on the name of the lord is public worship david talks about going to the house and calling upon the name of the lord among the people of god over and over again and so the, there was public worship between noah or between adam and noah right and then from noah uh, 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 to Abraham is really that same era where you know, but God chooses Abraham, and under the Abrahamic covenant, now you have Abraham who is a prophet, who builds altars, who leads his people. God's word comes to him, God, and God promised him. And if you were a child of God at that time, you wanted to link yourself with Abraham, you know, because Abraham is God's chosen one. And it, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchal period. And so there's this Abrahamic covenant where they get more information about, you know, the circumcision comes in at that time. That's something new that God does with his people. Uh, but it's the same covenant of grace. Believe in the seed of the woman, which is now the seed of Abraham. And now in the Mosaic covenant, all, over and over again, because God would keep the promise that he gave to Abraham. Because God remembered Abraham. So God is doing what he's doing with Israel because they're still under the Abrahamic covenant. But they now have a new administration Where things again are different. Now they're going to get the land that was just promised Abraham. Now they get the dietary laws. Abraham never had that. Abraham was able to eat pork on New Year's Day. Just like a good German. Right? I mean, there was no dietary laws for Abraham. That doesn't come in until now. Or the priesthood that's from the tribe of Levi, right? That all starts now. And the tabernacle and the Levites being chosen and the tithe coming in to the Levites and stuff. You know, Abram tithe, but now it's all these different laws and regulations. Why? Because God has a brand new covenant. No, the the covenant is being administered differently. But they're still under the covenant of grace, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abram. And what we learn is in, by the end of Deuteronomy, the blessing on Judah, right? That Judah is the one through whom the rule is going to come, which would mean the Messiah, and eventually we know David. But the whole Mosaic period is really the whole Old Testament. I mean, the Davidic covenant comes in too, But David doesn't change anything that Moses is given, right? When David comes on the scene, it's not like you don't have to go, uh, that there aren't Levites anymore, that there aren't priests anymore. No, all that continues, but now you have a kingship. Now you have, in addition to the priest and the prophet and the whole cult of Israel with all of the things they did with sacrifices and feasts and stuff like that, now you have a Davidic line through whom... You know, there are certain things that, that actually in Deuteronomy we're going to see. The law for the king is in Deuteronomy. So that anticipates David's uh, administration. But, uh, but really, truly, that's a great point, Steve, that we don't ever want to say that somehow Israel had some unique covenant under Moses that if they did everything right, you know, they would be saved by their works. By their works. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, and Paul says, but you stand by faith. Therefore, do not be haughty, but fear. Uh, Israel turned the covenant of grace into a covenant of works. It wasn't that. They did that in unbelief. And that's why God judged them. They were to see all of these laws as a way in which they lived out their faith, not as a way in which God saved them because they were better. Uh, and, and I think Galatians chapter 4 really goes into that, where it says, you know, these are two covenants. You know, Hagar... And Sarah. Hagar is Mount Sinai. Sarah is Zion. Both of them, by the way, were under the Old Testament. But what's to saying? Hagar uh, is the one who would come to God by works. Abram and Sarah coming up with this idea that Hagar, through their human efforts, would be, bring the Messiah. Sarah gets her child entirely by grace. And that's where we are. And that's what the Jews should have understood. But they did. They, they turned it into that. It's funny. The very thing that some teachers say it is, is what Israel did that was wrong. It wasn't a covenant of works. It was a covenant of grace. So uh, we have to close. Uh, let's close with a prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that we are in a covenant of grace because if we had to earn anything from you, our hope would be gone. But you are a God who chooses us and gives us all that we need, and even keeps us to the end because you are both the author and the finisher of our faith. And so, Father, help us to rejoice and to respond in a loving way, in an obedient way, that we would not bring unnecessary hardships in our lives as your people Israel so often did and as we so often do. But we thank you that when we do that, that when we confess our sins, you forgive us. And so thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.